everybody. Um, yeah, as Martin said, I'm, I'm Jem. Wasn't that just such a great time worshipping together? Um, just um, Nat and the band, you guys led us so well, and we're really grateful for you guys um, leading us. It's so fun to be here and um, speaking to you today. Um, have you ever um, had periods or seasons or days or weeks in your life where you have started out really committed to trying to faithfully follow the voice of God um, and found yourself just really quickly falling back into um, old patterns or discouragement and just realizing that nothing has actually changed, things haven't quite gone as you'd wanted. Maybe there's been times you've been at great um, like conferences or even a really great Sunday meeting and afterwards you've been like, this is it. Like, from today on, things are going to be different. I'm going to really commit to, like, pursuing God. I'm going to pursue him in prayer. I'm going to read my Bible every day. And then a few days later, or if you're more disciplined than me, a few weeks later, you realize you're back to how you were. Nothing has really changed. Um, and that can be really discouraging for us. Um, and, and I know that for me, when I'm in that kind of place, it can be really easy to fall into thoughts of, like, I'm not good at this, and I've failed, and I've like, let God down. Um, well, where we are today in the book of Haggai, um, we're meeting Israel in a kind of similar place to that. Um, where we meet them, they are people who are feeling discouraged, and we're going to see during um, this morning how God speaks to those people in the midst of their discouragement and some of the promises that he makes to them in that. So we are in Haggai. Um, if you would like to follow along with me, um, do turn to Haggai. I'll give you a minute or two to um, find it. It's between Zechariah and Zephaniah, and um, while you're turning to it, I'll just remind us of what we've seen so far. So Haggai is a prophetic book which means that it's God speaking to his people in the Old Testament through one of the prophets. Um, in this case, it's a guy called Haggai. Um, and it's set just after the exile in Babylon. So the people of Israel have returned from being in exile in Babylon. They've come together and come to Jerusalem. And at the beginning of Haggai, we hear this call from God for them to come and rebuild his temple, to come and invest in the things of him and his house rather than their own houses. And then last week, we saw how the people really faithfully responded um, to God's call, how they responded with enthusiasm and zeal and obedience and got to work building the temple. What we're reading from today is just two months later. So it's been two months for these people since they last heard the voice of God. And already, it seems like they are falling back into old patterns of discouragement and disappointment. It seems like the building of the temple isn't going quite how they hoped it would go. And it's into this that God speaks. So I'll read from the beginning of chapter 2. Um, so from verse 1, God says, or it says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. 
work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And God makes some pretty cool promises to his people there. Um, and we will get on to those. But where we meet the people here, like I was saying, they are feeling discouraged. They are feeling Perhaps like they are not able to achieve what God wants them to achieve. Things aren't going as they hoped. And you might be wondering or thinking, sure, but it's, it's just a building. They're just trying to rebuild a building. Why does it matter? Why are they so discouraged that it's not going as they want it to? But the thing is, they are not just trying to rebuild any building. They are trying to rebuild Solomon's temple. Now, Solomon's temple was widely known and still is probably as one of the most glorious buildings that has ever been built. These people that are in Haggai, they will have been told about this temple even as they were exiled in Babylon. You can imagine the older ones amongst them who might have seen the glory of Solomon's temple gathering the younger ones over to them and being like, let me tell you. You can imagine them describing those huge, vast halls, those enormous pillars down the center of them, and everything, everything overlaid with pure gold. You can imagine them describing these huge wooden panels which were engraved and etched with gold designed to look like trees, adorned with precious stones, and everything in these halls would have glittered. You can imagine them describing these huge curtains of purple and blue and crimson embroidered with cherubim. Everything in this place was beautiful. Everything in this place was designed to be glorious, to give us an idea or the people that saw it an idea and a sense of the glory of God. But the real glory of this temple was not the building at all. The real glory of this temple was the presence of God there. You see, when Solomon first built his temple, he dedicated it to the Lord. And just after he did, the presence of the Lord came into the temple in the form of this thick smoke that, that came in. Um, and we can read about in 1 Chronicles how the presence and the weight of the glory of God as this smoke came in was so thick, so heavy all around that the priests, whose job it was to minister in the temple, couldn't do it. They couldn't even stand in the temple, let alone minister there. And then soon after, God came in the form of burning fire descending from heaven down to earth. And this time it says that all the people that saw it fell face down before the glory of the Lord. And God's glory didn't just enter there for, for that one day, that one celebration. God's glory stayed there and then this temple became where he lived amongst his people. It's where he dwelt. But the people of Israel, 
as you might have heard, were unfaithful. And they rebelled against God again and again and again until eventually they found themselves in exile in Babylon. But they weren't the only ones that went. Because as the people went, the, the Babylonians came and they ransacked this temple. They took the gold and the decorations and the ornaments and they took all of it into the land of Babylon too. And this temple was stripped of the visible glory that had been adorning it. And then while the people are in exile, one of the other prophets called Ezekiel had this vision where he saw the glory of the Lord get up and leave the temple. This would have been devastating for the people because the temple was supposed to be this symbol of God's enduring presence in the midst of his people. And so without God's presence there, it wasn't a symbol of anything. It was just a building. And so by the time these people have returned from, is from Babylon, by the time they come back and they're trying to rebuild the temple, they're returning to ruins. And they are trying to rebuild this old temple and recapture this old glory. But all around them is just rubble. They are at a place that is, has been destroyed, that is now bereft of the glory that it once held, and it is bereft of the presence of the Lord. And this has implications, not just for the temple, but for the whole nation, because this temple was supposed to be the center of their culture and the center of their society. So if the temple could not be restored, it would have felt like Israel could not be restored. If the temple could not, like, was going to come to nothing, it would have felt like Israel was going to come to nothing. So where we see these people here in Haggai, we find a people who are probably so very acutely aware that they just are not up to the task they cannot recreate this thing that was so glorious and they cannot bring the presence of God into it by their own power. And it's into this context that God speaks those words and says, work for I am with you. Now, when he says this, it is not a rebuke. God is not saying, you're not doing good enough. I've seen your efforts. Come on, work a bit harder. No, he he knows that they are unable to build something as glorious as he deserves. He's aware of it. He's far more aware of their limitations than they are. It's not a rebuke. It's an invitation. God here is coming in and speaking so kindly to his people and inviting them into a work that he is already doing. He is not saying work because I need you to achieve something. He's saying work because I I am with you. Work because I am achieving something. Because you see, God is so happy for us to work from a place of weakness. He's so happy for us to work from a place of inadequacy and emptiness. Because it's never us that do the real work. It's always him. It's always him that is establishing his glory. It's always him who is bringing all things together so that he will be glorified through them. And he invites us in. He invites us to come and work with him in that place. In the midst of our weakness, we get to come and partner with him. God here in Haggai does not need a people who are able to make something so that he can come and dwell in it. God here is saying he is already with them. Because you see, if the real glory of the temple was always God's presence and he is with them, 
then that means that the glory was with them. It just isn't with them in the visible way that they are used to. Um, a lot of, not a lot, a few of my friends have said that when they imagine me, when they picture me, they tend to picture me in these orange dungarees, which, to be fair, I wear them a lot. <laughs> um, and kind of, that's a bit deliberate because I really like them, and I think that they express something of my personality. They're quite loud and fun and a little bit out there. Um, I think they represent me quite well. But it would be really weird if my friends refused to acknowledge my presence with them unless I was wearing these dungarees. And it would be really weird if I turned up to a friend's house and they didn't even recognize me because I wasn't wearing what they expected me to wear. Because while I think these dungarees express something of my personality, they're not me. <laughs> it's a bit similar what's happening here. God has previously come to Israel again and again and again, often in very visible ways, and often through this, this smoke and this fire. As he came in smoke and fire in the temple, he's already established to the people that, um, that these are signs of his presence. That psalm that Bethany read out earlier talked about God coming and dwelling in thick smoke and coming in tongues of fire. It was a really familiar thing for them. But here he is reassuring his people that even though he has not come like he previously has, even though he doesn't look like he ex they expect for him to look, he's not wearing what we have, he's taught them already to associate with him on earth, doesn't mean that he's not with them. <laughs> he is reassuring his people that even though the glory is not visible at the moment, he is still there. He says those really powerful words, my spirit remains in your midst. And it's, oh, he's just telling the people that um, just because they can't see him, his glory is not diminished. When we cannot see his glory amongst us, it is not diminished amongst us. If his spirit is here, then his glory is here. And don't we sometimes need that same reassurance? Because if we don't see God come as we expect him to, sometimes it can shake our identity and our understanding of whether he's even here with us or not. Because sometimes when God comes, it's really clear, isn't it? It's really visible and we're aware of it. Sometimes when God comes, he changes the atmosphere and we just know. Sometimes when he comes, we see healings. Sometimes when he comes, we can see other people meeting with him and encountering him in really visible ways. Sometimes when he comes, we can feel that really deep sense of joy and peace. And all those things are good. And it's good for us to associate those with his presence because they are signs of him amongst us. But sometimes we can end up in thought patterns where we think that if we don't see those signs, it means he's not here. That unless we can see these visible signs of him working with us, that, that God hasn't really come, it's just not true. I know that there have been times when I've been at work, I work as a nurse at the moment, when I've been with patients who are in pain or dying and suffering. And I've been really just in my head crying out for God to come and do something and so many times, I think every time, I can't think of an example where he's done something's changed. It looks like nothing has changed at all. So many times I've been at work and asking God to come and move, and it's felt like 
nothing's changed. The atmosphere hasn't changed. The people are still in pain. And I found that really hard. I've found myself wondering whether God is with me at all because I can't see him moving. But just because I can't see what he is doing in a place, it does not mean he is not with me. It doesn't mean he's not working. And I want to ask you this morning, what is it that you are really looking for? Are you looking for God and his glory and his presence? Or are you looking for exciting experiences and encounters with him? It's okay to have faith for those things. It's good to. But what we need to be seeking is him. Because the thing is, the church just isn't always going to look very visibly glorious. Sometimes the music's not going to capture our like spirit. Sometimes the preaching isn't going to stir our hearts. Sometimes the room itself might just be cold. <laughs> Sometimes the gathering will be small. But the real glory has always been his presence. And so we can hear those same words of encouragement today. Be strong because God is with us. We do not need to be discouraged because even when we cannot see it, even when it looks invisible to us, he is establishing his kingdom. And we are invited to participate even in the midst of our weakness and inadequacy and feelings of failure. He will bring about his glory and his purposes. And we get to join in with that. And I love that um, language that God uses in this passage, that continued refrain of be strong, be strong. I am with you. Because that's old language. God has used this language with his people before. He used it with Moses as he was drawing him out of Egypt. He used it with Joshua as he was just starting to take hold of the promised land that God had given him. God is calling back to this old language to remind his people in the midst of their discouragement what he has done in them, with them before. He is saying that because I was with you in those big things, you can trust that I will be with you in these small things. And then he uses that covenant language of I am with you according to the covenant that I have made with you. He is reminding them of his continued faithfulness to his people. But then, not only is he telling them what he has done and is continuing to do with them, he moves on to make some really cool promises about what he will do. God goes on to promise that even though at the moment the glory is invisible, his presence amongst them might be unnoticed and not in a way that they can see, that will not always be the case. One day, the visible glory is going to return. And it's not just going to return, he says, it's going to increase. He said it's, this glory is going to fill the temple. He says that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. When he comes, every nation is going to see this glory. And every nation is going to bring their glory into it. And when he comes in his fullness and in his glory, he says that he will establish peace for his people, as he comes to be glorified on earth, he establishes peace. He says that his people will be restored and whole once more. This is a God that even as he is taking his seat of glory, gives his people peace. 
we find our peace in his glory. And so, even though to these people who are standing amongst ruins, who are doing their best to rebuild a building that, I don't know, maybe it probably just doesn't look that good at the moment, even though it will not seem like this could possibly be true, they get to hold on to these promises that God is making that this temple is going to bear more glory than Solomon's temple ever did. And because we are a bit further on in the timeline of this great narrative, we get to see God starting to fulfill these promises that he is making. In the book of Luke in the New Testament, the first two stories he tells us about Jesus' life after he were born, was born are both about Jesus returning to the temple or Jesus going to the temple. The first one is where Jesus is taken there as a tiny baby. It's not long after he's been born, and here he is being carried into the temple by his parents. And yes, he is a baby at this point, but let's make no mistake, this is the full image of the radiance of the glory of God, not veiled now in a cloud, but veiled in flesh, being carried into this same temple that the people are building in Haggai. The glory of the Lord returned to earth and he did go to the temple just like he promised. And then in the next story, we find Jesus at age 12 and his parents find him sitting in the temple amongst the teachers. And I love the language Luke uses here. He, he says that Jesus was found sitting amongst the teachers. Because remember, when the glory came to the temple that first time in the cloud, the priests who were supposed to be working there, they couldn't even stand to be in his presence. And here he is, come again. And this time he has come in a way that means that he can sit amongst his people and sit and chat and be with them. And then when his parents say, why are you here? <laughs> we were looking for you. He says, well, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Like it's obvious. And maybe it is because the glory of God has come to earth. Where else are you going to look for him but in the temple with his people? It's so, I find it so exciting to be able to see God starting to fulfill this promises and this prophecy that was made way back in Haggai. But the thing is, there is, there is a greater fulfillment of these things still to come. One day, the full measure of God's glory is going to come and dwell with his people. And this time it will be unveiled and more permanent than even the temple itself. And John, one of Jesus' disciples, sees this being fulfilled. He has this vision of a new Jerusalem descending from heaven to earth. And he says about it in Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. John is seeing here just what Haggai prophesied, 
that the glory of God will come to earth and every nation will see it and the people of every nation will take all of the glory that, that is around them and things that they had previously considered to be of value and of worth and bring them all into, like, to the Lord because everyone will see and acknowledge that glory belongs nowhere else but with him. It's not just going to be visible. It's going to be visible to all. And guys, we are going to see it. We are going to see it like the people saw Solomon's temple. It's going to be vast and magnificent. And we will literally be there. And we will be part of those people who are bringing our glory into it and throwing it before our king. Because we will see that it belongs nowhere else but with him. And in that day, everything will be in its right place. And just like in Solomon's temple, this will not just be a visible glory. The real glory will be his presence there. John saw that Jesus and God, they don't just fill the temple. He doesn't just come to fill the temple on earth. He is going to become the temple and everywhere, everywhere will be thick with his presence and we will be united to him like never before. We will be in him. We will be in love. Not just in love, but in love. And we will never be able to go out of it. And all our burdens and all of our tears and our sickness, they will fall away as we are united to the one that our hearts long for. This is a real and sure future that we have. But while we wait for him to come and take his place on earth as the temple, until that day, we are the temple. The reason that the conclusion of my message isn't that we should all head to Jerusalem to go and seek the glory of God in the temple, is that we are the temple. He has put his spirit in us instead as a down payment of what is sure to come, which means that we can know him now and here, more deeply and intimately than the people in Haggai ever would have been able to, God literally pours his spirit into us to be the temple living on earth, walking around. And so the way that we can continually get excited for that day when he comes in his fullness, the way that we can allow our hearts to be stirred um, to encounter him there, is to encounter him now. To know him here and now as a friend who is intentional and dependable. As one who encourages us in our disappointment. We can know him now as a place to belong. We can know him as one whose heart is endlessly kind, whose extravagant love ever outstrips our apathy. We can know him as the one where we find all of our delight as the one who brings freedom, who walking with is an adventure. And the more we know him now, the more we can be in relationship with him now, the more we will long to know him fully there. The more glimpses we get of his glory here, the more we will long for when the day when his glory comes fully then. Um, so I'm going to invite the band back up. And um, I would just love us to respond by just making some space to encounter God again. Um, and to allow him to come and meet with us and see what he wants to do. Um, so I'm going to invite, um, if everyone else, would, if you would all like to stand, um, just where you are. And we're going to spend just 
two minutes waiting on God. Um, Kayla's going to play over us and then, and then we will sing a song. Um, but just where you are, you might want to close your eyes just like we were earlier. Put your hands out. I find it helpful sometimes in these places just to imagine Jesus standing before me. And we're just going to wait on him and allow him to come. It might be that already he is starting to speak into some of our disappointments or feelings of failure. It might be that he is gripping your heart again, getting you excited for a future that is coming.